Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. Such a blessing to see the flock starting to gather back once again after being scattered by a bit of sickness for a time there. Many still out for the 4th of July weekend that's upon us. From what we've heard, all have recovered well. Glory to God. We're grateful for that. We hope to be back to full strength by next week when we will have the Bonnert family, a a missionary family we support from Asia, joining us as they are on sabbatical. So you will want to make every effort to be here to meet and support them next Sunday. They are yet another reason to be grateful. And we are a people to be marked by gratefulness, grateful for our country, grateful for our family and church family, grateful for salvation. In fact, the other day I was walking by and I heard my my wonderful wife schooling our, our young Elias. And what I heard so drew me into the lesson that I had to stop and listen. And they were learning about gratefulness. But the teaching object of the lesson was not one that we would expect. This lesson aimed to teach gratefulness by looking to the chickadee. Now, most know the small bird, the chickadee, made famous by its song that sings its very name. But if any of you have chickadees around your house, you may have noticed a very interesting phenomenon. When storm clouds come, when rain pours, when snow falls, or even a blizzard hits, if you were to open your windows in the midst of that storm, you would hear a song. That's the chickadee. When all the other birds are running for cover in the worst of weather, the bright, cheerful song of the chickadee can be heard. And this is at great personal expense to the bird as they need to expose themselves to the elements in order to sing out their cheerful praises in the storm and the blizzard. But they do it anyway. They bring light and life to the whole woods as their cheerful song is sung through the storm. In fact, scientists say that the continual praise and cheerful disposition of this bird greatly prolongs its life. A chickadee will outlive almost all of its other feathered friends, living to almost nine years old. Well, it gets even better with this wonderful bird as they teach us gratefulness. Young chickadees have a ferocious appetite, so much so that parents often have a a difficult time keeping them fed and satisfied, like having teenagers. So instinct, as we see with so many other animals, would be to protect their food supply. If they found some, right, they would bury it. They would hide it away. But chickadees are grateful, dare I say, a faith-filled bird. Whenever they find food, they sing out a song so that all the other chickadees can come and partake. This bird is not primarily worried about himself or his family. It's almost as if the chickadee considers the welfare of the other birds before themselves. They're a grateful bird. They sing in the storm. They watch out for others before themselves, instinctively knowing that they will be provided for. They don't need to fight for every nut and berry. They will be given what they need by their heavenly father. So they sing out a song of praise and invitation, gratefulness in the storm, singing through the blizzard. What an amazing bird. Let us not quickly forget the chickadee. Well, beloved, we would be remiss this morning if we did not take a moment to give praise to God for what he has done in our country through the overturning of Roe v. Wade. 
Already we know of numerous babies that are quite literally alive, breathing, eyes open to the world this morning because of this ruling. It is real. It is tangible. While there are a million feelings and thoughts that well in the heart toward these five courageous justices, as always, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. And he turns it wherever he will. And ironically, my thoughts were turned toward the story of Hosea and Gomer from part three of our series that we just completed. Recall that God wanted Hosea to marry Gomer, a prostitute, to demonstrate his relationship to Israel. Israel was idolatrous. They played the harlot time and again. Yet even as Gomer continued in her idolatry, continued in her prostitution, in her licentiousness, falling to a completely debased state to be naked and sold on an auction block, that is where Hosea found her. And yet had mercy on her again. She in no way deserved it. That's what makes it mercy. That's what makes it mercy. Hosea lavished it on her, a harlot, an idolater. He would have been justified to have her stoned on the spot, but he didn't. Beloved, our nation did not deserve such a ruling. We have rebelled and we have waved the flag of our sin from the highest flagpole. We are a naked and a worn prostitute being sold at auction to the most depraved bidder. Yet God has sent us a Hosea. America, America, God shed his grace on thee. Let us see God's incredible mercy towards us in such a gift. We do not deserve it. From the outpouring of mercy, let us hear echoes of the Lord's plea to Israel. Return to me once again. We thank the Lord for this ruling. May it wash from state to state, removing the gray. You know, one of the beautiful things about living in wicked times is the removal of the gray. It all becomes black and white very quickly. The light, the light shines very bright when it's so dark. Thus, so many in evangelicalism today love to seek out middle roads on everything. Seeking to be nuanced and whimsical is what is valued today and seen as wise. That's not wise. That's cowardly. And too many in the church today want to hide out. They want the acceptance of the world. Living in the middle of the road, thinking that they're liked by both sides, thinking they are gaining some sort of inroad for ministry. Beloved, that's a mirage. God is purifying his church. He is removing the masks. There will be no hiding out as a true believer in the years to come. Now, ironically, it took a few black-robed secularists and a handful of Catholics on the court to call the church to account for what it believes. As the issue of life is returned to the states, there will be no hiding under a federal covering. The battleground over life for which we will contend, just went local. And local is where we live. And we must shine, church. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? 
Or am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. We must shine, church. Rulings like this have caused many tigers to shore their stripes in evangelicalism this week. And we have seen that in glaring but unsurprising ways. It has revealed the infiltration of secular forces and secular thinking into the church. Owen Strand wrote this week, quote, Our biggest problem is not that the church is in Babylon. Our biggest problem today is that Babylon is in the church, close quote. The Southern Baptist ERLC, who many may not know is the lobbying arm of the SBC, recently announced their national campaign against abortion called Make Abortion Unnecessary. Can you imagine saying that about any other crime or sin? Make rape unnecessary. Join with us in making murder unnecessary. I give you these examples, beloved, to demonstrate the clarity of biblical thought and of biblical worldview that will be required in the coming years on such topics. We cannot open up and read resources that we used to trust with our guard down. This is not your grandparents' Southern Baptist Convention anymore. Indeed, what better way to defang the largest Protestant denomination in the country than from the inside? And now they ask us to make abortion unnecessary. I believe that's almost a direct quote from presidential candidate Hillary Clinton when asked that question some time ago in a debate. Forewarned is forearmed, saints. Yet we will take joyfully the win. And we will sing as the chickadee in the midst of the storms and coming storms. We are grateful. And so we praise him this morning. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, two weeks ago, we completed our three-part series titled Jesus on Divorce. And I pray it blessed you. It was wonderful also to hear from those with solid marriages these past few weeks how very necessary these reinforcements and reminders are that keep us away from the ditches, from the sin that so easily ensnares us, to run with endurance the race that is set before us. So I pray you all were encouraged by that teaching from our Lord. This morning we continue in our teaching from our Lord to his disciples, and we've titled the message, Jesus Loves the Little Children. Many of us knew that song growing up, but do we understand the true meaning? Has it become something of a cliche? I hope after today's message that will not be. As we see Jesus blessing the little children, it's a sense, it's a scene that's familiar to many, but sadly often it's read over far too quickly. Perhaps with a momentary reflection and a pleasant scene in our mind's eye. How many times have we seen the, the murals or the paintings of, of Jesus with the children sitting on his lap? And it is beautiful. And it is wonderful. But owed to popular culture, not perhaps for the reasons we often think. It's our aim today to see the true beauty contained in Jesus blessing the children and the immense theological truths that are captured in this moment. The disciples needed to see it. We need to see it. So with that, let's look to our text this morning, beloved. Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. Mark 10, 13 through 16. And they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, 
he was indignant and said to them, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this scene today in our mind's eye. We pray that we might see it rightly. We pray, Holy Spirit, that we might learn the truths that are buried in this glorious text. Lord, as we each come to this message this morning from a different place and with different experiences, Lord, we ask that the arrow would find its mark this morning and do its perfect work that no preacher can do, but only your Holy Spirit can. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, how many of us think that we just heard one of the most consequential portions of Scripture? How many of us would read that, pause and smile and continue on with our reading? I'll confess I did just that. I did just that. And up until my study of this text, I largely failed to see the incredible weight of it. Well, we're blessed to have three different angle cuts to this story of the, in the diamond of the gospel. We find it recorded in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And we'll, we'll later find this to be very helpful. But let us allow the text to unfold the beauty of this itself. We're going to jump right into the deep end this morning, beginning with verse 13. Beginning with verse 13. And they were bringing children to him. Pause there for a moment. A reminder of where Jesus is at this point. He's left Galilee. He's left Capernaum. He's headed south on his long and final journey toward Jerusalem. Now, this is the time that's known as Jesus' Perean ministry, which lasted about three months. Now, Perea was commonly alluded to as the place beyond or across the Jordan. This was the normal route between Galilee and Judea that Jewish travelers would take to avoid going through Samaria. Now, I'm not giving you a geography lesson here. Why does that matter? That matters because it tells us who they are at the beginning of verse 13. And they were bringing children to him. If we know who they are by where they are, then we will know why they're bringing their children to Jesus. And that matters. The time for making the journey to Jerusalem for Passover has already begun at this point for many Jewish families, Jesus included. Thus, the area of Perea would be full of Jews heading south. So who are they in our text? They are Jews, not Gentiles. Jewish families bringing their children to Jesus. Now, we need to see the scene correctly if we're to exposit the meaning. We see the word children. Now, Mark uses the word paideia, which is a very general word for children. But the age matters here. If we rotate the diamond to Luke's account in Luke 18, he refers to the children being brought as brephos. And that means baby, infant, even a young, young toddler. 
You'll see momentarily why I belabor the point of age here as it's a linchpin in the meaning of the text. Of course, we have a what and a why to deal with here first. First, what does it mean that the people are bringing their brephos to Jesus? Well, it means he was considered a high teacher to them. He was respected. He was generally well-liked. It was a tradition when a, a Jewish child reached the age of one that their mother would bring them to a rabbi to be blessed, to be prayed over. That's the what. But how about the why? Why are they bringing them? Well, it means these parents wanted their children blessed and prayed over in accordance with tradition. These are not people that are coming to Christ as curios, as Lord. They are coming to kneel at the, they're not coming to kneel at the feet of their Messiah. They simply acknowledged him as a great teacher, a great rabbi. Bless my children, touch them. Ah, but this Jesus fellow was different. The rabbis and the high and lofty teachers, they would never actually touch the people. That would defile them. They would simply raise their hands to heaven and proclaim a blessing. But not this man from Galilee. Next part of our text. So that he might touch them. Beloved, we dare not miss that. We've taken great pains throughout the gospel of Mark to show our Savior's compassion. He did not have to touch the leper to make him well, but he did. He did not have to take the dead girl's body by the hand to raise her, but he did. You cannot defile perfection. It is death and sickness that must flee when it comes into contact with the perfect Son of God, not the other way around. Jesus would touch them so many times throughout his ministry, touching the untouchables embracing those that would defile or make unclean. Beloved, if we fail to capture this side of Jesus, we will never see his heart. But here's where it gets fascinating. Last part of verse 13. But the disciples rebuked them. What's going on here? How unloving, we might say. Who could imagine turning away the little cute babies? That's because we see babies and children through Western eyes. We see them through American modern eyes. Children were the bottom rung in ancient Israel. They could not produce. They could not work. Child mortality was very, very high. It's best not to get attached. Children had nothing to offer. Thus, they really were not valued. The disciples had forgotten their role as disciples to sit at Jesus' feet and learn and instead had turned into Jesus' secret service detail. Important people only, right? Make a path, people, coming through. The disciples were being task-oriented, not relationship-oriented. And I had to stop on that point of study because it struck me right through the heart. That's me sometimes steamroll the people to get the job done task oriented not relationship oriented but martha was distracted with much serving and she went up to him and said lord do you not care that my sister left me to serve alone tell her then to help me complete the task but the lord answered her martha martha you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. 
Mary has chosen the good portion. She has chosen to sit at my feet and learn. That will not be taken away from her. But the disciples are a product of their culture. They saw children through the eyes of their culture. And babies don't matter. Don't you see, Master, how much more important things there are to do? And the people bringing their children. We, we, we see it that it's, it's given in the imperfect tense, meaning it was continuous. It was babies after babies constantly with all of these families going south to Jerusalem. Cut it out. We have real work to do here, Jesus. The disciples think they're doing the right thing, don't they? We're ushering in Messiah's kingdom here. We're in Messiah's army here. This is big stuff, important stuff. Understand this, saints. Everything revolving around religion and salvation in ancient Judaism was about what? Works. What don't one-year-old babies have? What can't one-year-old babies perform? Works. So if you can't earn it, if you can't add works, you're not worth the time. That isn't just a flawed understanding. That's a different gospel. We have to grasp this failure, this spiritually deadly failure by the disciples if we're to make sense of this very harsh rebuke that's coming from Jesus in verse 14. Verse 14. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. Now pause there. Of course, the Greek gives us a a large semantic range for anger from being mildly perturbed to downright irate. This would be on the stronger side of that range. Jesus has a holy anger against what he has witnessed in his disciples. Now, if there's something that makes Jesus indignant, ought we to know what it is? Ought we to know clearly what has made Jesus so indignant? It is that the disciples continued to misunderstand Scripture and to miss it in such a way that if you don't change course, you won't even understand the kingdom of heaven. We will miss it by a mile if we don't get this straight right now. And we don't have to wonder what made Jesus irate and indignant. He shows us. Back to our text. Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them. Here comes the truth explosion. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Hold the phone. If we did not just hear a record scratching sound there, I've not communicated this properly. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. These babies. These one-year-olds. The kingdom of God. When we speak of the kingdom of God here, what are we speaking of? Well, it's a bit of a loaded term, and it can, it can carry some, some eschatological end times aspects as well. But what we are talking about here is the realm of salvation. And Jesus uses this multiple times. Later on in Mark 12, Jesus was speaking to the scribe. And when Jesus saw that he, saw that he answered wisely, the scribe, what did he say to him? You are not far from the kingdom of God. 
One theologian calls it, quote, the sphere in which God rules over those who belong to him. The spiritual domain in which souls exist under his special care. Close quote. We need to pause on this a moment and consider two main immense theological and doctrinal truths in Jesus' statement. First off, what does this say to us about babies, young ones, in regard to salvation, in regards to their eternal state? The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Salvation belongs to these, these brephos. These babies reside in the sphere over which God rules and are among those who belong to him. Babies, young children, exist under his special care. Now, tragically, we lose babies every year. We have our own holocaust of 64 million babies that were killed in their mother's womb. And what happens to them? We suffered in our own congregation the loss of a baby. And we mourned and we grieved. But the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. If you've had a miscarriage, the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. The same principle applies to mental impairment, to any retardation, those who maintain the intellect of a child, of a baby, for different reasons. Same principle. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Were these babies born in sin? Absolutely. Do they bear the mark of their federal head, the first Adam? Absolutely. All are born into sin. They're born sinners. Nobody is morally neutral by nature. They do not become fallen once they are old enough to choose sin. They are fallen from birth. The psalmist declares, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Paul tells us in Romans, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. But praise God, Paul didn't stop there. Romans 5.19, for just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, many will be made righteous. These brephos, these babies, these young ones in our text are born with original sin, the stain and the mark of Adam, but this is not held to their account. God is not capricious. He is good and he is just and he will extend mercy to those whom he will extend mercy. And here we see who some of those are. Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. He did not say elect children, not special, chosen children, blanket statement. All those who have not had the debit of sin charged to their account, the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. When Scripture wants to speak about the elect, it does, clearly, over 60 times in Scripture. But there's no such language here. All babies, all young children, all abortions, all miscarriages, all those who carry the intellect of a child through the effects of the fall are purchased of Christ. Now there is an age, and Scripture does not tell us where, 
that a child becomes an accountable being. Isaiah 7 tells us about a time before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. God is a good judge. All his judgments are right and true. They're fair and they're merciful. And this is not simply meant to give comfort to those who have suffered the loss of children. This is the clear teaching of Scripture. It is the clear teaching of our Lord in this text. This is the first enormous truth contained in Jesus' words, that salvation belongs to these babies, the kingdom of God. That's our first truth bomb on the disciples. But what about this statement, lands such a blow? What about this lands such a blow on them? Because if this is true, If salvation, the kingdom of God, belongs to these babies, then what else is true? It means that our entire system of works is wrong. Our entire legalistic, pharisaical Judaism is wrong. We have 643 dietary laws. We have the Mishnah and the Talmud. We have rules for rules. We have laws for laws for laws. We can't even drag a chair across the dirt floor on the Sabbath because it'll make a rut in the dirt and it'll constitute plowing. We have lived under the immense load and the burden of working and earning God's favor and appeasing His wrath our whole lives. And here now you tell us that all we've been striving for, all we've been working for is just given to a child, to a baby that has done none of these things, who has no works. Oh, teach us what grace is, Lord, because we have no idea the unmerited favor of God. Imagine the earthquake for all who heard this. Jewish families on the road to Passover in Jerusalem. A lifetime of earning, earning, working, working, hoping it will be enough in the end. Will the good outweigh the bad? And in one foul swoop, Jesus cast it all aside. This little one, not capable of keeping a single law, not a single work to their credit, the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And in fact, it goes even further. Watch this. Verse 15. No loose ends. Jesus is going to drive this home. Truly I say to you, truly meaning take this to the bank, beloved, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the one by whom and through whom and for whom all things were made, is saying truly, Listen to this, don't miss this. That's what that means. Not only does the kingdom of God belong to these babies who have no works to offer, no offering on the altar, not only is your entire system and concept of salvation wrong and an anathema to grace, but if you don't receive the kingdom of God, like this child right here, you can't come in at all. What does that mean? Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. What is a child by nature? 
Kent Hughes writes, quote, Every single child in the world is absolutely, completely, totally, objectively, subjectively, existentially helpless. Jesus is talking about how we receive the kingdom of God. It's coming to you as a gift. Salvation is arriving in a wave of grace and mercy, and it's given to a person who is wholly unworthy, completely helpless, who couldn't earn it in a thousand lifetimes. Nothing of myself I bring, simply to the cross I cling. That baby, that brephos in Jesus' arms, has nothing to offer him. Nothing. It is a wholly dependent creature. But our problem here is in the reception, Jesus says. The reception of the gift. What's polluting the reception? The hindering of the reception? Well, consider another story of an amazing gift. I was telling another brother this last night, or sister. A dear brother of mine, he's a, he's a pilot for UPS. A good friend of mine, and, and another dear brother of mine as well, is also a pilot for UPS, and one found out that they were in need of a kidney transplant a few years ago. Well, they, he would surely die. Well, on a whim, that other friend got tested for compatibility. And the doctor said it was the highest marker compatibility he'd ever seen. One in 100,000, he said, making him the perfect donor. Well, soon, soon after, they were both off to the Mayo Clinic as, as one friend donated one of his kidneys to the other. Very humorously, both were later able to fly together on a trip for UPS. It was the first time in aviation history that one person's kidneys were in both seats at the same time. It's a wonderful, remarkable story of, of love and of friendship, of a, a gift that was priceless. They, they asked him to even to come on Good Morning America, and they said, only if we can give glory to Christ. And they said, no. So, okay. It was a gift that brought life. Now, what if my friend, upon receiving this life-saving gift, said to my other friend, oh, thank you so much. Here, let me do something for you. Here's $5. Oh, thank you so much. Here, let me come over and cut your grass. How does that sound? What an insult. You've denigrated the gift. You've cheapened the priceless gift by thinking you could ever pay me back. You could never begin to pay back such a gift. To even attempt it is an affront to the gift giver, is it not? We must receive the kingdom of God. You must receive salvation as this child, as this baby, as helpless, as a dependent debtor to mercy. Our foul system of works, disciples, is utterly wrong. You're a recipient of grace. You've received the kingdom of God and salvation, and you're trying to earn it. You're trying to pay it back with your works. Here's my five bucks worth of dirty rags for your priceless gift. Jesus is saying, if you think you can add your works to this gift of salvation, you don't understand it at all, and you cannot receive it. You must come as this child. 
All these pharisaical rule books, all these extra biblical laws, rules outside of scripture, you are trying to keep, trying to bribe the king of the universe who has bestowed upon you the most precious of gifts. It's an affront. You don't need to grow up, beloved. You need to grow down. If you will come, you will not come as a man. Working, working. You will come as this one right here. As this one-year-old sitting in Jesus' arms. Nothing to offer. Nothing to bring. The least in society. Not valued by anyone. But is content to rest in Jesus' enveloping arms. I'm not digging in my wallet to pull out some works. I rest and I receive. It's how we must come or we cannot come at all. God will not be bribed. God's gift will not be cheapened by our legalism or our works. Now that's not to say that later on that child won't pick up their room that they won't serve and work out of love and gratefulness? Of course they will. But it is a love offering. Because, beloved, for the redeemed, there is no debt left to pay. Understand this, beloved. Not only are our works an affront to the gift giver, a pile of rags, but even if we, a redeemed child of God, a recipient of grace, were to bring our five bucks worth of works to the king, to what account would it even be applied? Your debt's been paid. Your debt's been paid. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Embedded in this exhortation are the most fundamental truths of the gospel, of grace, of the nature of salvation. And it was like nothing they had ever heard. Finally, verse 16. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. We all remember the song, Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. We can sing that song with all surety and knowledge today. We know that he does. We know why he does. And we know what that means. This is so much more than a beautiful scene. Even more than the gentle compassion of our Savior enveloping the children in his arms. Beloved, this is the very truth of the gospel. Herein lies the very heart of salvation, of justification. Like an army of men trying to enter into the highest walled castle, they work and they work, trying to climb the walls. They labor and sweat, but it's too high. And they dig and they dig, trying to go under the walls, but it's impossible. And up walks a little child to the forbidding gate, and says, I can neither climb a wall, nor can I dig a hole. I have nothing to offer, but I have an invitation from the king. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we are humbled beyond words. Lord, so many of us have tried to approach the wall that is your kingdom with a shovel, with a ladder. But Lord, none will do. Lord, if we do not receive it as a child, we cannot come at all. Lord, we ask that you forgive us for trusting in our works, for trusting in anything other than the mercy of God. Lord, we ask that the truths of this scripture would embed itself in our very spirit this week as we continue to turn it over in our hearts and turn it over. Lord, we ask that it would be fixed in our hearts. Lord, as we go out from this place, as we go out into the mission field, as we go out to celebrate this country that you've given us in great mercy, that you continue to shed your light upon, we ask, Lord, that our hearts would be turned toward you, that our hearts would be turned toward our countrymen that do not know you, that we would be bold in our love and affection. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.